I feel like you're often not destroying me, to be perfectly honest. Well, good. That means you have not yet detected my master plan. Hmm. Hmm. Seems fair. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. What are we talking about on the Design Games Podcast this time? This time, we are, in fact, talking about the time, as in how do you think about designing the use of time, both real and fictional, into your game? Hey, Nathan. Yes, Will. How long is a turn? That answer varies on the game that you're playing, now doesn't it? Why do you think that is? It depends on what function a turn is serving. There are many games that do not have specified turns. And then obviously many games that do, and some that do specify some kind of unit, while others, the base unit is the turn. Can you think of any game in which, any RPG, I should say, in which the turn is a predefined unit of time, like a, like rather than a six-second turn or a ten-minute turn, but in which the game language is just minutes and seconds and ten minutes? And I can't, I couldn't think of one. I was trying to think of one. You mean like, like the... That instead of turn and round. It's not abstracted into larger units. It's yeah. just like, when you do this thing, it takes this many. Yeah. I mean, off the top of my head, no, not. That just blanket refers to everything as like seconds and minutes. Right. I believe that, if I remember right, in GURPS, at least in third edition GURPS, the six second round, I think, or maybe it was turn, I don't know, but like the, the six second block yeah. was, was fundamental to math that went into lots of things about your what you could do like the 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 math of how far you could go was based on it being six seconds and then if you wanted to change the scale of things that ended up sometimes implying that you then had to be adjusting how long the turn is right like if you wanted to do a larger scale game where you move longer distances then if you really did all the math so that it impacted all of the different things that it could impact, then you have like a 10-second round instead of a six-second round. Like and and you could literally scale it up and look stuff up, like to find out the real, like the real-life rate of a, of a giraffe. Sure, yeah. But out if somebody wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I forgot about that. I think you're right, because yeah, I hadn't, but I hadn't thought about that. That said, whether the turn t- was six or ten seconds, I don't think that mattered in and of itself, other than as a reference point for these other formulas. And I'm thinking in uh, D&D has a lot of things that, are, that last, like spell durations that are a minute. Right. Or 10 minutes or an hour. Which I remember getting tripped up on because some things are a minute and it's easy to be like, okay, so that's a round, but a round was not a minute. The number of minutes or number of hours duration Mm -hmm. didn't map to turns and rounds. Right, because there's the, the, the constant question as to whether or not things are happening happening simultaneously, even though they're not happening simultaneously, mm-hmm. or how, how much overlap there is between your turn and my turn. Right. Yeah, so that if you have six players, or if you have four players, a round is a different length of time, mm-hmm. if, each, if each turn is six seconds. Right. And yet, to some extent, to somehow, the wheels have never come completely off of Dungeons & Dragons and <laughs> thrown the cart into the river. Well, right, because at a certain point, you settle for the abstraction at some level, compared to a game that abandons this language, right. uh, like Apocalypse World, where mm-hmm. when you're in a fight, you just continue the conversation. It's just about fighting, not about seducing and manipulating, or about trying to get power over the heart holder or whatever. <laughs> I can't think of off the top of my head, but I'm sure there must be at least one or two that exist, but powered by the apocalypse moves that contain, not not implicit, because those are all over the place, units of time. Like, for example, if you have a move that is scour the forest, 
that obviously takes longer than read the sitch mm -hmm. without being picky about how much time that is. It's just the fiction will kind of naturally take care of that. But I'm trying to think if there are any moves that have a specific like take 10 minutes to do blank. Mm. I can't think of any, but just as an example, and I don't see why you couldn't other than the fact that you'd have to kind of probably right. have the whole game respect that in a way that would be Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's an example out there that isn't coming to mind. There's lots of things that work that point the other way. Like for example, in worldwide wrestling, there are things that you can only do once per episode. And an episode is a session of play. Regardless Regardless of whether it's an hour of play or four hours of play, or if you break it into two sessions, but it's still one fictional episode, right. like that's possible. So something that you do in your first, an hour one of this two session episode of a, of a move that you can only do once per episode, you still can't do an hour five. Right. So that, that's dramatic timing. Right. Not temporal timing. Yes. I don't know what the other word is. Yeah. Literal timing. I mean, real time, right? Like I kind of think about these as, as real time versus fictional time or like real world time versus in game time. Which I guess is another separation from dramatic right. time. Because an episode might represent 10 minutes. If, if the dramatic hook of the episode were that where you were telling the same 10 minutes from five different perspectives sure. or something, you know, whatever, some kind of edge case. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's, I mean, it's interesting to me how we can we can cut it a lot of different ways and then sort of align them mm -hmm. so that it might be that, that turns and minutes and scenes align in one thing for very short, I mean, the turns and minutes almost never would, but let's say 10 minutes or 20 minutes align into a turn and a scene and a, and a round or a turn all at once. But very often these things, the the, the gears of the clock essentially are, are constantly being realigned for, I want, I almost, I, my instinct was to say for drama, but I don't think that's actually as true as mm -hmm. to say for the clarity, of, for the conversation. Well, a lot of it is about structuring player input, right? Right. The, the whole model of go around the table and everyone takes a turn, which I think we import from from board games and, and war games. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I imagine. Like that whole idea, as you say, with like, where does that six seconds in a D&D round, you know, where does that fall in a six person game versus an eight person game versus a two person game? The goal of everyone take a turn is to ensure that everyone has a chance to do a thing before another person has a chance to do a thing, right? Or however that's structured, if it's, if it's, there's an initiative and maybe you get to go twice or whatever. But the, the point is that there's a, a structure in place so that you're not skipping people or or for you to hang other things about spotlight or mechanical efficacy into that framework. And so that means that not necessarily mandatorily, but there's a an interaction, a relationship then between time and if not fairness than game balance, and if not game balance, then fairness, which is to say that time is inherently steady in things that we are often modeling, minutes are minutes and seconds are seconds, mm. but activities that we're modeling in time are often not fair. So we want the game to be a little bit more fair than, say, a combat actually is. If I've got reach, I may just kill somebody, or rather more accurately, if somebody else has reached, they might just kill me in a, <laughs> in a combat. But that, that's poor engagement, and that's mm -hmm. poor play, Yeah, or can be. Well, because the, the issue, right, is that the actual real-world passage of time is a resource that you need to manage when you're playing. And they, a lot of the time falls to a, a person, usually like the GM or or you know, someone who's in charge of deciding when you stop doing a thing and go on to the next thing. Mm. And so mechanics about turns, right, are kind of acknowledging that in some situations, Nathan is going to take up 70 of our 90 minutes with his flowery, evocative descriptions of action, while Will, who who is trying to get a word in edgewise, is going to be getting talked over unless there's some level of, of recognition of like, you should have roughly equal time to talk or, or your time to talk is based on something else about your character. You, you get to go twice per combat round. So you actually have double the time to talk than I do because your character is built to do that in combat. 
Right. Or even uh, it's easy to imagine. Like I think of Celerity and Vampire, which was, of course, allowing people to do a lot more mm. sort of at once or in one sitting so that even if they didn't talk as much, right, if it wasn't even if they were taking if they, if they were honoring real time, but they were not their character did not have to honor game time oh, in the sure. same way. Right? Yeah, you can do it either the, or the game can apportion that effectiveness either way. It can be towards the person who, who talks a lot more or it can be towards the person who gets more dice in the same real time right. role or whatever. So you could imagine, for the sake of argument, a game that says every scene is four minutes in length and someone's job is to use a stopwatch. And that in itself is going to drive a certain style of play, possibly more strongly than any amount of pointed mechanical die interactions. Right. right? I love the idea that a die must be rolled every 10 minutes of real life time for mm-hmm. some effect. I mean, there's actually a great thriller mechanic in there. <laughs> I think, right? Which is that you're in you're in a house with an alien, mm-hmm. right? You're on a spaceship with a monster, and every ten minutes it'll do something. Well, in uh, Black Sun Deathcrawl, uh, which is a scenario slash skin for uh, OSR adventure stuff, there's a there's a real time stopwatch that you're supposed to run in that and it's every whatever it is every couple minutes every five minutes or something the characters gain more corruption as the light of the black sun continues to penetrate their puny their frail human forms yes their frail human forms and that's a mechanical thing and then you you roll on a table and and see what new like corruption thing you get in that game it's great because it's this relentless thing that you can't do anything about you can't attack the corruption with your sword, if you even have a sword, because you don't have swords, because you don't have anything, because you are a frail being fleeing the, the corrupting light of the black sun. Um, <laughs> I love it. It's like, it's like Plato's The Cave, but in mm-hmm. reverse. Eh, a little bit. A little bit. But yeah, my point is it's not something where you can like cast a spell to stop the corruption. Like It is a expressly timed, outside-the-fiction threshold that then impacts the fiction, and there's nothing you can do about it. Imagine a game that has kinds of scenes. This is a role-playing scene. Mm -hmm. So you get to talk for more real time if you want it up to a number of minutes equal to your charisma. Mm. So, oh, I'm sorry, Doug, you're out of time. Mm. You only have a charisma of eight. Yeah, most of the time when I've seen real-time mechanics, they're usually about tension and racing against a clock, right? Which is a pretty natural fit. You know, you have less less time to make decisions. You have less time to talk through all the options. So you have to make snap decisions, which might be poor decisions. So that creates tension and, and kind of inherent drama. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've seen games that explore the other direction and kind of say, due to this stuff on your sheet, you get this many real minutes to do this thing or this many real minutes to do this other thing. Right. There's a, a version of that I'd completely forgotten about this, but I tinkered with for Game Chef years ago and never never finished, never submitted, um, but was about three people in three different interrogation rooms with the same detectives. Mm-hmm. Three people who've been separated and they may be witnesses, they may be criminals, we don't know yet, but those three people are players. And the detective is the last player, the fourth player. So it's a game for exactly four players. And the three of them are kind of playing liar's dice, except that they can't, the only way to communicate what number is on their die is that they cannot say more sentences than are on their, or excuse me, they cannot say fewer sentences than is on their die. Mm. So part of it is that they can't agree to just not talk to Mm. the detective. If you roll a die and it's, you know, you roll your dice and they're hidden. And if you have a four, you have to say four things to the detective. Now you can lie. Mm. And the detective is sometimes letting the other players hear each other for the prisoner's dilemma situation in part, right? To say, well, look, he's writing you out right now. Mm. So 
the detective essentially has the power to carry some of that information side to side, and the players are all at the same table, so they can all hear each other. Right. But yeah. so, and it's just one of the reasons, obviously, it was it's half baked. But but there was that notion that dialogue being directly uh, uh, mm-hmm. apportioned. Sometimes you see that through some kind of resolution thing, like mm-hmm. you get this many details to put into a scene. Actually, kind of the the houses of the blooded mechanic works like this to summarize you roll some dice and you end up with some number of wagers and then that's usually a single digit number and then you spend those wagers on adding things to the scene essentially in addition to maybe getting some kind of mechanical benefit or overcoming the opposition or whatever the other vectors of mechanical things there are. But so if I end up with four wagers, then that means, oh, now I potentially get to add four fictional things to the scene. But that in and of itself is not playing with this idea of a real time versus fictional time. But one could see maybe an extension of that idea of like, okay, I have four wagers. I get four minutes in which to decide something versus if I only have two wagers, I only get two minutes or right. something like that. Well, that's what I'm also thinking. And, and that's a great example. I've actually never played Houses of the Blood. I've got it. But it's a great example because it, it also suggests, for example, how much longer does it take a player to do a thing than it takes for the character right, to do a thing. Right. And how much are your mechanics emphasizing or exaggerating the difference in mm-hmm. time flow between your characters and the players, where the players mm-hmm. play one combat in a night, they spent two and a half hours on it, and that was two minutes in, re- in the game. Right. Versus then their characters traverse a countryside in four minutes of dialogue four minutes of description and now they're a hundred miles away on Eagleback or something. You see this in conversations of how much, uh, air quotes, how much we got done in a session. <laughs> right. Right. With some games and also with some groups of people, right? Some some people, sometimes the table dynamic is one that's much more about description and narrating things and kind of taking a long time to make decisions and stuff like that. Uh, while sometimes a table is more about we do a thing, we do a thing, we do a thing, we see what happens. And when you end up playing with both of those tables in a short amount of time, you can kind of feel that difference of in this game, we ended up getting so much, we get so much done per session that we play an entire arc of the one ring in a month. Right. Wow. With this other table, we've, we've been in Rivendell for two weeks and still haven't, you know, decided where to go next. Yeah. That's fascinating. And that's especially yeah, that ability to compare them across the same, the same situation in the same game across two different groups to see how mutable, how fungible time is for them for two, for different styles of play. So I thought of an example of a game that does use real time. Oh, great. Which is the time travel game Continuum, oh. which I have not played because it is a very difficult game to comprehend. So so Continuum is, is a time travel game that has this entire in-world time travel, cosmology, and physics, essentially, for like how it works. And it's kind of legendarily difficult to wrap your, your head around. So I've read it, not played it. But one thing that stood out to me from it is that, so you play this time traveler and there's all these like different factions you can be a part of, essentially. And you're ranked in the faction. So you start off basically as level one or rank one or whatever the language is. Mm-hmm. And then as you gain experience, you go up the ranks. The experience rules are such that it says you cannot go from rank one to rank two until you have played this game for a month. Like as a player, you cannot go from rank two to rank three until you've played this game for six weeks in addition to the first month. Right. And I'm not sure if those are the actual numbers. I'm pulling them out of memory. Those probably aren't technically correct. But the point is, uh, I believe this is in the text. It says it takes this long for players to learn how to use the mechanics to their full potential. And as you go up the ranks, it unlocks more things you can do and more like time travel stuff you can do and more and more complicated recursions that you can potentially get yourself into. 
So it's basically saying you have to have a baseline understanding of how this game works, which we will map to number of, of weeks playing the game in real time before you will be able to to engage with the higher order crazy stuff, you know, like the really weird stuff. You, you start off with the, with the kind of weird stuff and then it, it, it escalates. Man, I totally forgot about that. I mean, I remember the continuum, but I forgot about that mechanism. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. I am reason. I'd have to go back and look. I'm reasonably sure that that is the rule. It might be an optional rule, but I think it's the experience rule. Is you both have to earn points, earn you know some in-game currency, and there's there's a break point of real-time playing before you can level up. Do you know? I mean, what would you do if the idea is that you only got to play twice in those first in that first month, for example? You know, like yeah. is, is there a ratio? Do you think? I, I think it remember. says like assuming you're playing once a week. Wow. Change these numbers based on your frequency of play. Wow. Because I almost like, especially today, I would want to see a game with your chats and your texts and your Twitters and your emails that uses that length of time, but in which the, the amount that you actually play is less relevant to the amount of time that you essentially spend, if you will, with your character. Mm-hmm. Or that, that the time that goes by in the setting is roughly equivalent to the time that goes by in real life, except at the table. The mm-hmm. table is the time for montages. The table is the time for prolonged atmospheric diatribes or conversations or soliloquies. The uh, table is the time for massive battles to go by, for a week to go by in a session, these sorts of things. But that what goes on in between. Oh, it's like there's literally been the week for your characters is the same week that has passed for us as players like, yeah. from, from session to session. Or, or if that time is just linked to even like the number of tweets or text messages mm. that are like each text message is a day. So you can send out a text message a day, but mm. if you send out two in a day, then, then two days go by. I don't mm. know how that would work necessarily, but, in, but a game that is deeply rooted in time that way. There's a game that just became available called The Beast, and it's a card-driven solo game. You play for 21 days, and you're supposed to turn one card a day, and then you you do like journaling and, cool. and stuff. We can put the, put the link in the notes. Great. Yeah, so I believe in in that case, the real time is a restriction mm-hmm. in to to create a separation between game moments. So there's time for you to like reflect and absorb and mull over and think in your mind and be suspenseful, right? Yeah, and then find to before you find out what happens, whatever the next card, whatever the next prompt is. Yeah, I love that. That's really cool. Which has a second order effect of everyone who plays the game has spent three weeks playing the game. And then you you kind of enter into a society of other people who you know have spent three weeks playing this game. There's something about the specificity of that time that's that's kind of compelling to me. No, definitely. The relationship then between the game's design, how the segments of play are, versus how long those segments take to play out relative to real time, as best you can estimate it before you know the players. So, for example, in some games, getting getting through a whole combat that's got a ton of goblins and a ton, ton, ton of horses and, and destructible environments and stuff, right? On the one hand, that might feel like we got a ton done, or it might feel like we only got one through one combat, mm-hmm. versus a game where you have a conversation with the queen, you journey over land, you rescue the prince, you turn him briefly into an eagle so that you can smuggle him back into the country, uh, then turn him back into a prince, return to the queen, right? That all these things feel like they happened as opposed to another game where the same story takes place, but it doesn't feel like you got enough done, right? Because mm-hmm. it was all, it's all an adventure phase and this game has four phases right? or something. So, I mean, can you think of games that you really like that divide up or change time or the, the interaction with time? Mm-hmm. So that they do, so that you reliably do or don't feel like you're getting a lot done. I mean, I'm using scare quotes too over a session or a, a campaign or whatever. Like I'm trying to think about because since you brought up that example, almost every example I can think of is still so deeply subjective to playcraft. I mean, I think the the main thing you can point to is the rhythm of the of of the reward cycle. 
if the reward cycle of the game doesn't really kick in until you've gone through all four phases of play, then each session being a phase might feel like it takes forever. While while if the reward cycle kicks in at the end of each phase of play, then four session, you know, going through four sessions of each of the four phases, it's like, all right, we're ticking along. That's kind of for the sake of argument. I mean, I guess I'm thinking like the, the games I tend to play are a little faster paced where you're seeing characters change and grow and be able to get new stuff and do new things kind of after a session, two sessions. So that's kind of what I was wondering, right, even when you were talking about, you know, how many phases you get done or where the reward cycle is, is. Yeah. Do you think there's a relationship, and if so, what is it, between seeing a change in the game state, be it a character or the world or whatever it is, and the feeling of what we got done? And therefore, kind of these these suggest that they're linked mm. to time in various ways. Well, I think there has to be something. Like I'm thinking, to me, I think it feels more satisfying to complete an entire D&D combat in one session as opposed to have it be broken over multiple sessions, right? Oh, like man. That feels like yeah. it's taking forever. Yeah. If that one fight is one in which, you know, you very clearly get from, we have, we have finally passed the bridge and we are now in the Goblin Keep. That probably feels like we got more, we've made more progress than we were ambushed by owlbears outside the, the castle. We fought the owlbears. We didn't die, but we're still in the same fictional place with the same fictional agenda. We right. just had to like beat these owlbears first. That said, there's still going to be a bunch of, of these fights before we see the, you know, leveling up and getting treasure and all that stuff. I'm comparing that one way to my experiences playing World of Darkness games, where the rate of getting XP compared to how long we actually played a game, we actually didn't generally do a whole lot of changing stuff on our sheets. The economy of of it was such that like, oh, I got another dot in a skill, that kind of thing. So the pacing of the game was much more about achieving fictional goals. We cut this deal. We defeated this werewolf. We overthrew this Justicker, that kind of thing. And then maybe there are some experience points on the other end of it for achieving that. But the feeling of progress was fictional milestones. And then kind of going the other way again to like an apocalypse world game where those tend to sync up for me, where I got the hard holder on my side, we went out and fought the psycho clowns, and my lieutenant died and I actually marked two XP over the course of the game because like I had a highlighted thing and then, you know, something else happened. And now I get to spend those advances on something that is going to impact the next session right. because of how that economy syncs up. That's interesting to me because not just of the way that I had the similar experience as a player that the world of darkness is for me, I was always accelerating XP because it wasn't fast enough to reflect in the characters the kind of changes they had made to the world. Right. And I think in part because it, it's designed at one pace so that it becomes easier to accelerate it. And then, because if you slow the pace, then everybody's going to feel cheated. Right. Or can, particularly, I think. People who are playing long-term campaigns, mm-hmm. which the World of Darkness supported really well, versus people who, like me, were playing like, well, we're going to play Vampire for X months, and then we're going to switch to Wraith, and then we're going to switch to whatever. Right. But that relationship between changing states, whether it's the state of the character mechanically, or the state of the world fictionally, or the state of the character fictionally, and the state of the world mechanically, are these kind of different combinations. Time is something that, I don't know if links is the right word, but that becomes a, a means of helping us appreciate, of determine mm-hmm. the relationship between them, both real and fictional time, dramatic time and real time, and say... Well, it took us four sessions to to defeat this villainous vampire, so we got a real feeling of payoff when we did it. Right. Here's my two XP, with which I can buy nothing yet, but I still feel like I accomplished a lot. The XP mm-hmm. is kind of secondary to that, as opposed to the same campaign might be, I got a bunch of XP for finally concluding this mystery, let's say, but or, or for concluding, for, for solving a murder 
and I did it really fast because I just happened to guess the right guy. So mm-hmm. I got this massive bunch of XP. So the XP made it feel meaty, even though it was like, wow, was that the whole, it just took me one session to solve that mystery or whatever. Right. You know, yeah. Like, like interact. I got some, some lucky rolls or something right. and ended up like, oh, found the treasure at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, you're right. I mean, in terms of how that interacts with, to me, part of the magic of why that interacts the way it does in the Powered by the Apocalypse games is not just the alignment. Although you're absolutely right that they do align really beautifully, the fiction, because the fiction mechanics are so interrelated, but it's because the sense of progress is built into the mechanics as well, whereas mm-hmm. the sense of, of progress is not built into the, the XP mechanics and a lot of get XP, buy stuff systems. Right. For example, then something like D&D, I love the fact that the first couple of levels, you go up really fast. Right. And so you get this this momentum, but then there's still a lot of ability for the DM and the players to work the throttle depending on what monsters they take on and so yeah. forth. So building, the fact that XP comes from the environment, comes from the fictional world, whether the quests you undertake or the monsters you defeat or the people you rescue. So I think that idea of the, the throttle, that's really key because that's what you're trying to sync up the amount of real time you spend playing with a satisfying amount of fictional time that passes and milestones that you that you cross or whatever because we're players and we are the ones in control of this it's all about tapping the gas tapping the brakes knowing that you can floor it and what that will mean if you do right like all that stuff and so as designers i think we need to at the very least be aware of what in our game achieves those things what happened like how do you tap the brakes in your game how can someone uh, open up the throttle in your game? Um, and you see this sometimes with like, here's the here's the version for doing a one shot, or here's the pre-prepared scenario for a one session game. You know, those are essentially like, just let it rip. Like, here's a bunch of stuff already set up because we know that takes a while and, you know, you just run off with it. I play games where the person running it set up front, like, we're going to play and here's all the stuff. And I'm going to be giving you double the normal reward so that you can see what leveling up looks like. If we were playing a, air quotes, normal game or a standard game, you wouldn't see it for a couple of sessions, but you're going to get all these reward points. And then at the end of the session, you can be like, oh, and here's all the stuff you could do. And we'll have a little epilogue of showing you improve your character. Right. Because that's encapsulating the experience in a, in a way that isn't like uh, stock, right, for the for that game. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the question of something like Fiasco, in which the mm-hmm. scene, the dramatic unit, is a game state. Mm-hmm. But a scene can be two minutes, it can be two months, it can be two years. Two years can go by in five minutes of play, two minutes can go by in 20 minutes of play, depending on how we're doing it. But the fact that it, like you were saying, it, it connects what you what progress, it stops to measure progress every scene. This is what that scene did, mm-hmm. which kind of die you get. And everybody gets a turn. And then the structure is all based around those game units, those dramatic units. Fiasco, on the one hand, structures that aspect very cleanly. It responds to the player's throttle rather than directing the player's throttle. Because I've seen people mm-hmm. get into uh, situations where they where the first act takes two hours and now they're out of time to play. And then they're like, oh, we didn't find out how it ended. And groups who can do a whole game, two acts, the whole game, turn everything in 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Depending on the play set, the group, how often they play, there's so many variables. And obviously the game can't be responsible for all of those. Right. But it's an interesting thing to see how the dramatic structure is very fixed. And inside that dramatic structure is a throttle of conversation and description and role play that can expand or contract dramatically inside that fictional unit, that variable mm-hmm. unit. And of course, that's why I did a time travel game in it. But Yeah, I think the the scene as the, the basic unit of play is a pretty well-trod territory, pretty yeah. well-understood thing. Some games drive scenes with other mechanics, while Fiasco, for example, the scenes themselves are what drive, you know, are, are driven by the, the players and then 
are what other things in the game hang on, like the end of the scene die and all that. So right. When the tilt happens, that thing. Yeah. As a baseline starting point, you know, there are so many games that say this game is a series of scenes and here's kind of what the contours of a scene look like. And when you're done with the scene, go on to the next scene. And maybe when you start a scene, choose a thing or at the end of a scene, choose a thing. Um, between scenes, here's a thing you do. And those tend to be broken down between like the mechanics either start or stop a scene and then the the middle of the scene is kind of is is fictionally is all just fictionally driven right yeah that's very popular i'm very i mean or i don't know if it's popular but it's it's well explored and yeah. but still not fully explored i think because i think there's still structure obviously to go in there in that course core model or ways to define the boundaries of the scene like you say the contours the scene has been a unit of dramatic structure right forever i think we're we, still messing with it yeah and we get that from fiction and, yeah. and other forms of narrative entertainment contrast for example uh with a war games which you wouldn't really talk about having scenes you talk about having turns and maybe the turns are within phases or something like that although a dramatic scene driven sequence driven action sequence war game mm-hmm. i would buy that yeah someone get on that sure that's out there somewhere so that's a bunch of ways to think about time and the passage of the time and its utility as um, one aspect of all these other things you're, you're using to structure your game. But I think that's all kind of to say, like, what's the what's the point of thinking about trying to mess with this relationship outside of functional things? Like, we need to know how many seconds it takes to do X because a bunch of formulas for other things in the game depend on X. Or I'm designing this game to fit into a two-hour slot, so... I need things in the game to ensure that we hit two hours. Like in my game, uh, Witness the Murder of Your Father and Be Ashamed, Young Prince, it is a one-hour game. Someone is in charge of watching the clock, and if you get to the hour and a decision has not been made, then there's this kind of fail state and Crow invades and everyone burns. So there's an incentive to try and and figure something out before the hour is up. And that's kind of because both to, to create that kind of race against the clock kind of sense of, of some kind of impending doom to, to add some friction to the overall game. And also because the premise and the uh, token resolution and everything, I feel like there's only so much fun to be had out of it. And I timed it to be about an hour. Like there's about nice. an hour of fun to have out of this interaction. <laughs> so why have the door be open to to people going like, that was fun for the first hour, but... Right. Right. And just be like, no, no, it takes an hour or less if you can hack it. Part of the beauty of that too is there are a lot of games in which I feel like that sweet hour is in the middle mm-hmm. or after the first hour of setup and stuff. But in that game, I, which which I played at God, Gen Con three or four years ago probably, but we had a great group and I think I definitely know what you're talking about in, in that it, it's fun almost immediately but after like right as the as the end approach we were like we weren't just saying oh god we gotta get this finished but we were also like we're ready to get this we're finished. ready to get this finished yeah yeah, yeah. it's like everyone kind of had like the first thing you thought of and then you have another round of like oh and here's this other thing that i want to get in there and then it's like eh, we should probably wrap this up so or, or we will be at this all day <laughs> right exactly yeah and also in that game because it's so it's, it's basically just making speeches at each other yeah so like if someone's there who likes to talk a lot all of a sudden they become the bad guy because they're eating up all the time. Nice. Yeah. So, so that said, for me, I think one of the big reasons to think about this question is because when you're talking about time, you're talking about pacing and right. pacing is so, can be so critical. Pacing in so many ways, right, makes the difference between a game that is intriguing and a game that is dramatic. 
or a game that is captivating versus a game that is suspenseful, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that pacing is the is the trick, I think, between... I mean, especially for games like RPGs in which emergent or not narrative is going to play a part, whether it's how much time we have to make a narrative out of the components we get, whether it's how quickly we have to make critical decisions and then that affects the narrative that we take out of it later, whether it's that we want a fight to feel suspenseful or we want it to feel frightening, or we want it to feel daring. These things may not happen if the idea is, you know, a turn is... Even if a turn is represents 10 minutes in the battlefield, but the players can take as long as they want to figure out each turn. And so you just sit there and you math that out. And if the game is such that, that imagine a game with an RPG with no dice, mm-hmm. which you can math it out and make the best decision. Sure. Well, if you have infinite time to do that, then suspense is one thing, but the rush and panic of combat is not necessarily going to be what the game reflects. Mm-hmm. So that pacing, and that's that's an extreme example, but something in the middle, which is where you realize two minutes after your turn is over, oh, you know what I could have done. Part of that is regret or is buyer's remorse, mm-hmm. but part of that is also just the genuine ev- evidence that the, that the pacing is working, that the characters right. made a decision based on time, mm-hmm. for good or ill. Yeah, It's a big thing in design is to make it so that that pacing is somewhat diversified in its reactions as opposed to, I never have enough time to make my decisions, right. I always regret it. Right, right. Yeah, because you, you want the rest of the game to be able to absorb someone making suboptimal decisions and it's still being functional and, and fun and, and delivering for them. Because otherwise, I think you, you, you get into very brittle design space. Yeah. Well, likewise, how much time does a player spend not playing? Oh, yeah. Is in that same category. If you've got 10 players, yeah. even a well-oiled game can take too long while the other players are sitting around checking Facebook while waiting for their turn to come back. Mm. Which is why, I mean, sometimes the design decision in my experience is as simple as saying, this is a game for four players. Right, yeah. Sometimes you can use, yeah, you use number of players to limit that. Or you say, like, a session of this game is about two to three hours unless you have more than four players. And then it might be more like four to five hours. And that all also makes me think about how one one very tried and true method of this is putting pacing in the hands of the GM. Like the GM is the person who decides what scenes happen in what order and has the final say over when they start and stop, that kind of thing. Can see the players' faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so you're kind of saying the, the best way to apportion time use in this game is for a human at the table to adjudicate. Or if it's when it's someone's turn, they, choose, they, get, they say when the turn ends. Versus when it's someone's turn, the person across the table from them decides when the turn ends. Divvying up these responsibilities actually can impact and feed into the implied amount of time that's there, right? Depending on the other incentives. If you only have so many scenes that you're able to propose, say, during a game, like everyone gets four scenes that they get to start, maybe you want to, you're okay letting other people go ahead and do things because you're saving yours years up and you're like go ahead and take up most of the session with your with your long scenes that are doing this other stuff i'm going to use mine to you know get these short punchy things in that no one can say no to right or something like that which affects as we've talked before cognitive load how much am i think am i juggling at one time including mm-hmm. including time splitting that up over different players in a way can help the game run faster just because mm-hmm. you, you don't have one person that's tracking time and dice and resources and real life time mm-hmm. and when the pizza's supposed to get here and you know whatever it is there's so many things that, that could be at play dividing that up means not only that there is less pressure per minute on each player but there is more time to enjoy the good time while there is time Thank you for listening to the Design Games Podcast. If you have questions or comments for us, come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com. 
Visit designgamespodcast.com to leave questions, like episodes, and click the heart button on anything on that page that you find delightful. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just 